Chapter Fifteen, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty-five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. President Roosevelt, Part One. On the afternoon of September thirteenth, Vice President Roosevelt was at Lake Colton near the summit of Mount Marcy in the Adirondacks, beyond the reach of telegraphic or telephonic communication. He had left Buffalo upon the assurance of President McKinley's physicians that their patient was in no immediate danger. Mr. Roosevelt's own family were on Mount Marcy, and the illness of his children had called him thither. He was in the heart of the unbroken forest in the company of several friends, when a mountain guide, making his way through the black tangle of the woods, brought a message from Buffalo to the effect that the President was sinking fast. Two hours were consumed in returning to the house from which Mr. Roosevelt had started upon his long tramp. Another delay of four hours was necessary before any further messages could be carried up the mountain. When they arrived, they made it evident that President McKinley had but a short time to live. Just before midnight, a light mountain wagon drawn by two black horses was procured, and amid inky darkness and in a misty rain, the long and perilous journey from the mountain peak to the nearest line of railway was begun. More than thirty miles of trail and broken road were covered before morning in this nightmare of a drive, among huge boulders and massive stumps of trees, the horses plunging through the darkness where a single lurch might mean instant death at the bottom of a ravine. Note 1, page 667. Toward daybreak, the driver drew rein at a little railway station where a special train was waiting with steam up. As Mr. Roosevelt leaped from the mud-splashed wagon and entered the railway carriage, a dispatch was put into his hands informing him that the President was dead. Arriving in Buffalo, he found the cabinet assembled in a private house where presently the oath of office was administered, and Theodore Roosevelt became the twenty-fifth President of the United States. Having taken the oath, he said, in this hour of deep and terrible national bereavement, I wish to state that it shall be my intention and endeavor to continue absolutely unbroken the policy of President McKinley for the peace and prosperity and honor of our beloved country. Soon after, in Washington, he requested each member of the cabinet to remain in office, saying, I need your advice and counsel. I tender you the office in the same manner that I would tender it if I were entering upon the discharge of my duties as the result of an election by the people, with this distinction, that I cannot accept a declination. These words of the new president did much to allay a feeling of apprehension which the news of President McKinley's death had aroused in many minds. In the campaign of the preceding autumn, many conservative persons had found their one objection to the Republican nominations in the fact that in case of President McKinley's death, his successor would be a man so young, so impulsive, and so little sobered by the responsibilities of high office as Mr. Roosevelt appeared to be. His declared intention to follow out the politics of President McKinley and the serious and dignified manner in which he entered upon the presidency were distinctly reassuring. Senator Hanna voiced the general opinion when he said a few weeks later, Mr. Roosevelt is an entirely different man today from what he was a few weeks since. He has now acquired all that is needed to round out his character, equipoise and conservatism. The new and great responsibilities so suddenly thrust upon him have brought about this change. Note 2, page 668 Mr. Roosevelt was, in truth, the youngest of the presidents. When he took the oath of office in Buffalo, he was in the forty-third year of his age. There can be no doubt that some apprehension was justified, both from a knowledge of his temperament and from a recollection of his previous career. 
Mr. Hannah's remark, which has just been quoted, was on the whole an optimistic one. It represented an ultimate truth, but it was rather in the nature of prophecy than of existing fact. At that time, Mr. Roosevelt had not yet been tried out in the fire of supreme responsibility. He was even younger than his years. His character was still unformed. It may be said, indeed, that its defects, while far less numerous than its virtues, were perhaps more obvious and more likely to attract the notice of a superficial observer. Mr. Roosevelt was the descendant of a line of respected merchants of Dutch extraction. He had had advantages which few of the later presidents possessed. Educated at Harvard University, his early associations had been with men and women of cultivation and refinement. In his own family, it had been his misfortune to be regarded as something of a prodigy. Whatever he did or said or wrote was viewed with unstinted admiration. He was praised and flattered so habitually that a weaker nature would have been wholly spoiled. It was to Mr. Roosevelt's credit that he was not spoiled. Yet it is also true that there was developed in him a certain egoism which throughout his early career took the form of an extreme self-consciousness. This accounts for the circumstance that, however fine might be the things which he accomplished, he never seemed to do them simply or without an eye to approbation. Whether he wrote a book, or made a speech, or felled a tree, or broke a bronco, or championed a measure of reform, or charged a Spanish fort, he always did it more gallico, with a certain instinct for theatrical effect, while his appetite for praise was quite insatiable. He was fond of talking of himself, and in talking of himself he almost invariably monopolized the conversation. He had the professional reformer's love of sermonizing, and a restless desire to make any and every subject a text for a dogmatic harangue. Theodore, said ex-speaker Reed to him on one occasion, if there is one thing more than another for which I admire you, it is for your original discovery of the Ten Commandments. Note 3, page 669. An eminent English historian, after visiting the White House, was asked by a compatriot what he thought of the new American president. Why, said he after reflecting for a moment, he seems to be an interesting combination of St. Paul and St. Vitus. In writing one of his earlier books, he used the personal pronoun I so frequently that his publishers were compelled to order from a type foundry a fresh supply of that particular letter. Sufficiently robust to endure public criticism, he was as sensitive as a girl to any shadow of disparagement that came to him in private life. After he had read over one of his early messages as president to a group of three or four intimate friends, Secretary Hay, in answer to a request for criticism, suggested that the word big occurred somewhat too frequently. Mr. Roosevelt took instant umbrage. With a snap of his teeth, he answered, Big is a good strong Saxon word. I like to use such words as that. A remark which revealed at once his thinness of skin and his utter misunderstanding of Mr. Hay's objection. During the presidential campaign of 1900, Mr. Roosevelt was in Chicago where he made several speeches. On entering his hotel one Sunday morning, a number of little blackguard newsboys jeered at him for having, as they said, shot a Spaniard in the back. This taunt from such a source, to which most men would have given barely a moment's thought, wounded Mr. Roosevelt to the quick, and it was some time before he recovered his composure. The President's self-esteem sometimes led him to make light of the self-respect of others. He gave great offense in the early months of his administration by the manner in which he treated men much older than himself men who had grown grey in the public service and who were accustomed, if not to deference, at least to courtesy from others. 
Toward these men, Mr. Roosevelt bore himself as toward inferiors, slapping them on the back, calling them by nicknames, and inspiring in them an uncomfortable sense of personal humiliation. Even Senator Hanna, bluff and unconventional though he was, took umbrage at this offhand treatment. Mr. Lincoln Stevens is responsible for a story which illustrates the assertion. Note 4, page 671. It is repeated because contemporaneous anecdotes, while often apocryphal, do unquestionably represent contemporaneous opinions and impressions. During President McKinley's funeral ceremonies, Mr. Roosevelt and Senator Hanna were seated side by side. Mr. Hanna was moved by sincere grief at the loss of his lifelong friend. Tears ran down his cheeks and he made no effort to control his feelings. Mr. Roosevelt, on the other hand, with questionable taste, was at that very moment thinking of his own political future. Turning to the senator, he said, I hope, old man, that you will be to me all that you have been to him. Yes, returned Mr. Hanna, still choking with emotion. I will, I will, only D-blank-N it. Don't call me old man. The German ambassador, Baron Speck von Sternberg, was on terms of some intimacy with President Roosevelt, who nicknamed him Specky. This was all very well in their private intercourse, but the president was not always careful to use in public a more formal mode of address, so that great irritation was aroused in Germany over what was thought to be a personal indignity offered to the representative of the German Empire. The President was likewise reckless in his speech, often expressing his private opinion of his associates most freely, and at times in the vocabulary of the cowboy. Such things as these were bruited about and quite unnecessarily did him harm in stirring up bad feeling and resentment. A very notable instance of the President's lack of consideration for others was found in his treatment of Sir Thomas Lipton, the Irish yachtsman, who had visited the United States in order to race his yacht for the America Cup. The President had entertained him at the White House and had shown him much civility. A little later, a yacht club gave a dinner in honor of Sir Thomas and asked the President also to be its guest. This, of course, was a breach of etiquette for which primarily the ignorance of the club's committee was responsible. The President of the United States cannot attend a dinner at which any other person is the chief guest of honor. What Mr. Roosevelt ought to have done was to decline the invitation on some conventional plea. Instead of that, he both declined it and let it be known that he would not attend any dinner to which Sir Thomas Lipton was especially invited. Now, Sir Thomas Lipton was not a person to be taken very seriously. Many thought his interest in yachting to be not that of a sportsman, but of an advertiser who was concerned in calling attention to the teas in which he dealt at home. Yet he was a stranger, and he had been the President's guest so that the open affront then put upon him was deplorable both in its lack of feeling and in its breach of ordinary civility. Many persons laid the blame upon the President's private secretary, but his intimate friends denied that this was so and reported that Mr. Roosevelt was alone responsible and that he regarded the whole thing as a tremendous joke, forgetting that the President of the United States should be the last person in the land to forego the self-respecting courtesy which marks a high-bred gentleman. His self-consciousness appeared in many other ways. When he first became president, his friends, bearing in mind the fate of President McKinley, urged him not to go about the streets alone and unprotected. I am amply able to protect myself, remarked the president with a glance at his two fists, and the listening reporters telegraphed this characteristic speech from one end of the country to the other. Yet, before many weeks had passed, and in fact throughout his presidency, 
Mr. Roosevelt caused himself to be more closely guarded and made approach to him more difficult than had been the case with any of his predecessors. Secret servicemen swarmed about his person, and once when he visited New York to attend the funeral of a relative, a thousand policemen were detailed to safeguard him as he passed along the streets. While visiting a fair in Syracuse, he was hemmed in on every side by cavalry. Now, it was a courageous thing to declare that he could amply protect himself, and it was a very sensible thing for him to guard against assassination. But to have declared that he could protect himself, and then to seek or even to permit the sort of protection which a Tsar of Russia might require, was not only inconsistent but somewhat ludicrous. The explanation of it is to be found in the workings of his ego. He doubtless came to believe that his own person was sacrosanct beyond that of any other president, and so he passed from a state of recklessness to one which seemed to indicate timidity. When President Grant was most unpopular, when he was maintaining carpet-bag government at the South by federal bayonets, and when thousands of newspapers were denouncing him as a tyrant and a military dictator, he used to stroll along the streets of Washington wholly unattended, pausing to gaze into the shop windows and moving about as freely as any private citizen. This was the highest type of courage, the courage which is quite unconscious of itself and which does not even think of danger. Mr. Roosevelt could scarcely have attained the same degree of imperturbability. His courage, in fact, was of the French rather than of the Anglo-Saxon type. It was allied with a certain nervousness which could perform the most daring deeds if they were deeds of action, but which became restive and almost uncontrollable when patience and grim endurance were demanded. Mr. Roosevelt's physical courage was, however, beyond all question. As to his moral courage, opinions were divided, and this division of opinion was justifiable. Bold in the utterance of his convictions and in asserting the fixity of his purposes, he nevertheless, in the face of strong opposition, was sometimes known to yield. His actions often failed to square with his spoken words. He was amenable to pressure. His mercurial nature led him frequently to take the line of least resistance, rather than to fight doggedly against a stubborn opposition. In this respect, his conduct compared at times unfavorably with that of President McKinley, whom Mr. Roosevelt himself had spoken of as having no backbone. An illustration of this fact was early afforded. President McKinley had in 1897 appointed Mr. H. C. Evans of Tennessee to the Office of Pensions Commissioner. Mr. Evans administered that difficult office with the strictest integrity, reforming abuses, exposing frauds, and thereby incurring the bitter enmity of pension lawyers and of the swarms of persons who presented dishonest claims. The office had seldom known so clean and upright an administration. But the Grand Army of the Republic sided against the commissioner and demanded of the president his removal from office. Enormous political pressure was brought to bear in order to secure this end but President McKinley resisted it like a man. He could not be moved, and he gave unflinching support to Mr. Evans despite the clamor of venal claimants and malingerers. The same pressure was applied to President Roosevelt. He withstood it for a time, but in the end he yielded. He feared to risk his popularity and incur the danger of losing what was called the soldier vote. Mr. Evans was ostensibly advanced to another and more lucrative office but it was perfectly obvious that this was only an indirect fashion of getting him quietly out of the way. It is but fair to add, however, that the gentleman whom the President appointed in the place of Mr. Evans was no less honest and capable than his predecessor. A very characteristic glimpse of Mr. Roosevelt's mental processes was afforded by another incident. 
Not long after he had become president, he received at the White House Mr. Booker T. Washington. Mr. Washington was a mulatto who had successfully established a school for the training of Negroes at Tuskegee in Alabama. By his sound sense and tact in teaching his people not to ask for social recognition from the whites, he had won the goodwill of Southerners and seemed to be in a fair way to solve the Negro problem of the South. After he had talked with the President for some time, the latter invited him to be his guest at luncheon, and Mr. Washington accepted. Now, Mr. Roosevelt, in his private capacity, had undoubtedly the right to entertain at luncheon whomsoever he might please. The President of the nation also had the right to make anyone his guest. But in doing so, it could be only with a full understanding that even the simplest action of the President of the United States can never be the action of a private individual or free from consequences. In this particular instance, the consequences were lamentable. The President had offered social recognition and Mr. Washington had accepted it. At once, all the good feeling which had existed in the South toward the experiment at Tuskegee vanished and a great part of the excellent work which Mr. Washington had laboriously accomplished was undone in half an hour. The President is said subsequently to have given an account of the affair to a political friend in the following words. When luncheon time came around, my first thought was to invite him to stay and lunch with me. Immediately it flashed across my mind that this would make no end of trouble. But I asked myself, Are you afraid to do it? And I answered, No. And so I invited him to come in to luncheon. Now, at first sight, this may seem rather fine, but when analyzed it shows a certain lack of moral courage. Although the President knew that his invitation, defensible enough in itself, would do serious harm to a really noble cause, he lacked the courage to refrain from giving it. In other words, he was afraid of being thought afraid. It was partly from this lack of firmness and of loyalty to his own ideals, and partly from his love of approbation, that the President often fell short of what men felt they had a right to expect of him. In generalities, no one was ever more energetic in denouncing the sinister influence of politicians who made public office a means of private gain. Yet in practice, when some of Mr. Roosevelt's own supporters and associates crossed the line which divides right from wrong, he dealt with them most tenderly and allowed his thunderbolts to sleep. A congressman named Litor, who was shown to have used his official influence to foist upon the War Department the wares which he produced as a private manufacturer, was still made welcome at the President's table, though he had escaped indictment only by a legal technicality. When the notorious Key died, President Roosevelt sent a telegram of effusive sympathy on the loss of his loyal friend. Many times he made it plain that he had one ethical standard for strangers and quite a different one for those who had, as it were, been sanctified by their intimacy with himself. Of more far-reaching importance was a widely spread belief that President Roosevelt was unsafe. He was certainly impulsive in his mental processes, impatient of restraint, and had little respect for ordinary conventionalities when these stood in the way of his desires. His recklessness of speech was thought to indicate an equal recklessness in action, and his youth was cited as affording still another reason for distrusting him. On several occasions, indeed, his precipitancy led him into blunders, as when he once sent a message to Congress urging the passage of a bill which in fact had become law several days before, and as when he nominated for a judgeship a gentleman who was constitutionally ineligible for that office. His talk was often couched in hyperbole, he was fond of sonorous adjectives, and he garnished his speeches with eulogies of war and of the warlike virtues. 
For these reasons there were many who described the new president as having a lawless mind. One enumerates these defects in an interesting character, not because they were in themselves transcendently important, but because they explain the feeling of opposition which President Roosevelt often roused in the minds of the conservative. On the other hand, it is probably quite true that these same defects did much to make him popular. They were very largely defects which he shared with a vast number of his countrymen, so that they proved him, as it were, to be a typical American. The self-consciousness, the touch of swagger, the love of applause and of publicity, the occasional lapses from official dignity, even the reckless speech, the unnecessary frankness, and the disregard of form were traits that in a sense were national. That he stood by his friends, even when his friends were not only wrong but reprehensible, was counted as a virtue. On the whole, then, Mr. Roosevelt's failings were held by most Americans to be quite as worthy of admiration as were his finer qualities. Of finer qualities there was assuredly no lack. All the natural impulses of the man were sound and right and true. His whole training and the influences to which he had been subjected from childhood tended to make him generous and high-minded. He had an instinctive scorn of whatever was cowardly and hypocritical. In the best sense of the word he was democratic, respecting men not for their pretensions or for their station or for their wealth, but for what they were as men. Popular opinion, groping about for the most appropriate adjective, asserted that the president was square, and this homely description was absolutely true. However often personal prejudice or mistaken beliefs may have made him inconsistent with his own professions and ideals, he was fundamentally sound, and his purposes were those which all good citizens could unreservedly commend. He was the first president who had been born to something like wealth, and this fact had freed him throughout his career from the need of considering public office in the light of a financial necessity. His income, while modest enough according to the standards of the time, sufficed at any rate to make him personally independent. This was an enormous advantage to him, since he was not obliged to curry favor with mercenary politicians. He was free to disregard them or to fight them as he chose. Hence, as an assemblyman in New York State, as civil service commissioner, and as police commissioner, he was regarded less as a Republican than as an Independent. He was theoretically at least a believer in free trade. He cooperated freely with Mr. Cleveland when the latter was governor of New York, and he opposed the nomination of Mr. Blaine in 1884. Caricatures of that period represent him as a mugwump, grouping him with George William Curtis and Carl Schurz. Yet nonetheless he was essentially a party man, and after Mr. Blaine had received the party nomination, Mr. Roosevelt supported him. His own explanation of his attitude at that time was interesting and wholly logical. He said, I intend to vote the Republican presidential ticket. A man cannot act both without and within the party. He can do either, but he cannot possibly do both. It is impossible to combine the functions of a guerrilla chief with those of a colonel in the regular army. The one has greater independence of action, the other is able to make what action he does take vastly more effective. I am, by inheritance and by education, a Republican. Whatever good I have been able to accomplish in public has been accomplished through the Republican Party. I have acted with it in the past, and wish to act with it in the future. Note 5, page 679 When he came to the presidency, Mr. Roosevelt kept the same argument clearly before his mind. He must often have reflected that the partial failure of President Cleveland's administration was due to the open breach between that statesman and the other leaders of his own party. 
Mr. Roosevelt's purpose was to work through his party for the modification of its policies. But from the very first he found it difficult to tolerate many things to which the Republican Party was committed. Still more difficult was it for him to receive with real cordiality some of the men who in Congress figured as the party's chiefs. Unlike President McKinley, Mr. Roosevelt had never sat in Congress. He was not imbued with the traditions of the place. His ethical sense had not been dulled by long familiarity with the ways of Washington. He brought in, as it were, a stream of fresh, pure, bracing air from the mountains to clear the fetid atmosphere of the national capital. He did not, as most presidents have done, restrict his official and social intercourse to the company of politicians or of men who could be directly useful in the sphere of politics. Mr. Roosevelt had come in contact with many sides of life, and his range of interest was much broader than that of any president since Jefferson. His early years had been spent as a member of the wealthy and cultivated class. He had been a ranchman and knew well the people of the West. His service in the Spanish War opened to him still another field of new experience. In his life he had tried his hand at many undertakings. He had written books. He had advocated social and political reforms. He had herded cattle on the great ranges of Dakota. He had directed the police of the American metropolis. He had helped equip the Navy for the war with Spain. He had fought in the Cuban swamps. He had governed the most populous state of the Union. He had presided over the Senate of the United States. A caustic English critic once said of Mr. Gladstone that statesmen believed him to be a scholar, while scholars were under the mistaken belief that he was a statesman. Something of the same sort might have been said at this time with regard to Mr. Roosevelt, for in all his pursuits he exhibited something of the naivete of the amateur. Yet, with the incompleteness of technical knowledge which marks the amateur, he had also the amateur's enthusiasm and sincerity. Note 6, page 681 His intellectual curiosity was a marked feature of his character. He wished to know all sides of life, to learn all shades of opinion, and to keep himself informed of all that was going on in the world of thought and action. It was his custom to send notes from time to time to the Librarian of Congress, saying, let me have a batch of the latest books on all kinds of subjects. And presently there would be delivered at the White House a miscellaneous assortment of volumes comprising works on psychology, engineering, chemistry, medicine, horticulture, and sociology, besides novels, poems, essays, everything, in fact, which represented contemporary thought. These books Mr. Roosevelt would devour eagerly, storing away the essential facts in his retentive memory. As with books, so it was with men. He gathered about his dinner table guests from every section of the country, scholars, lawyers, men of letters, men of business, manufacturers, ranchmen, Adirondack guides, journalists, and members of his old Rough Rider regiment. Whoever had done anything or said anything or written anything that was at all notable eventually found his way to the White House at the President's invitation. To the talk of all these men he listened most attentively, and thus he gained a first-hand knowledge of what the people as a whole were interested in, of what were their prejudices and preferences, and also of what were their complaints and grievances. He knew his countrymen, and with his keen sense of justice and his wide range of sympathy, he gradually became more and more in the true sense of the words, the people's president. All this was by no means pleasing to the veteran politicians who sat in Congress and who were jealous of their own assumed prerogatives as keepers of the presidential conscience. 
Between them and Mr. Roosevelt there existed, and there could exist, but little sympathy. The sleek, sly senators who dabbled in stocks on the basis of their official knowledge of coming legislation, who took large fees from corporations in return for legal opinions, which were never read or heeded by the persons who paid for them, the men who owed their senatorial seats to the favor of protected interests, these had an instinctive distrust of a president who looked them squarely in the eye and knew their baseness. They disliked him from the outset, and they spoke of him contemptuously among themselves as this young man, using the term which his opponents applied to the younger Pitt, and which Bismarck, when dismissed from office, growled out to characterize his emperor. And they had good reason for their apprehension. From every quarter of the land there came to the President's knowledge facts, convincingly substantiated, that there existed many evils which could be corrected only by a strong hand and a fearless heart in Washington. In the early months of 1902 there was beginning to be felt a distinct reaction against that glorification of materialism which had been so widespread and for a time so thoroughly acceptable. The country was still as prosperous as ever, yet it was impossible to close men's eyes to the fact that in the train of this prosperity had come great wrongs. The worship of wealth had bred corruption both social, municipal, and national. The words of Horace, Coconque Modorem, had apparently been taken as a text by thousands of unscrupulous men who were practicing the myriad forms of knavery, now characterized by the collective name of graft, a word appropriately borrowed from the argo of common thieves. The cities of the country, great and small, had been looted by franchise-grabbers, who, in securing invaluable concessions without rendering an equivalent, had found it necessary to corrupt the municipal officials and to maintain a swarm of hired lobbyists in the legislatures of the different states. Note 7, page 683. Some of the greatest fiduciary institutions of the country, notably the life insurance companies, had developed a complex system by which they misused the funds entrusted to them. Note 8, page 683. With these things, however, and others like them, the national executive had not the constitutional power to deal. There were, however, two far-reaching abuses from which the entire country suffered and against which the statutes of the United States had armed the federal government with a measure of power. These abuses were, first, the discriminations by railways against shippers, and, second, the oppressive domination of the trusts. The two evils were closely related, since many of the trusts, such as the Standard Oil Company, the Sugar Trust, and the Beef Trust, owed much of their supremacy to the secret and unlawful favors which they had extorted from the railroads. Early in 1902, the price of meat had so advanced as to direct general attention to the methods of the six great packing houses, which together constituted what was popularly called the Beef Trust. Note 9, page 683. Investigation showed that these meat packers had agreed not to compete against one another, that they had divided the cattle country into districts, in each of which only a single branch of the trust should buy, and that the practice had been established of bidding up the price of cattle from time to time so as to induce large shipments, and then of ceasing to bid when the shipments reached their destination. It was discovered also that the railways in the Middle West had granted to certain purchasers of grain rates which were lower than those charged to the smaller buyers so that in practice there was but one buyer in each system, who was thus unable to destroy competition and to fix at will the price to the producer. Note 10, page 684. A like injustice was inflicted in the same way upon cotton growers in the South. 
Finally, in 1901, the Northern Pacific and Great Northern Railways, by purchasing a third railway system, had effected a merger of the three in what was known as the Northern Securities Company, which thus became a combination able to monopolize the entire transportation facilities of the Northwest. End of Chapter 15, Part 1